Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's good to see you. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10 today, Romans 10. We are launching into this new series, Straight Out of Context 4. And so if you've been around for installment one or two or three, you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. But there's always someone new here around Grace, which is good. And uh, so I probably should explain the title just a little bit. There was a movie that came out, uh, and it was about the 80s rap group N.W.A., and the title of that movie was Straight Outta Compton. Now, I don't need to tell you that because you are an 80s rap group kind of crowd, I could tell. <laughs> but what the internet did with Straight Outta Compton is just hilarious. You know, the internet turns memes and it turns things into memes instantly. A meme is just a joke about the original thing. And so there have been, I think, a trillion memes made about Straight Outta Compton, like this one, Straight Outta Swampton, good old Shrek. It's dad jokes, okay? You've got to get into dad jokes, okay? Just dad joke mode, all right? So another one, Straight Outta Driving School. That's a good one. That's, I think, my favorite one. <laughs> Poor guy hit the, uh, hit the fire hydrant. I know, man. Or... Good old Donald Trump, straight out of hair gel. <laughs> so you get the idea. And so we've done the same thing with straight out of Compton, and we're going straight out of context. And for the last three years, we have had a series where we look at Bible verses or passages that are misunderstood. And the reason that they're misunderstood, most often, is because they are ripped out of their context. They're taken out of the flow of Scripture, taken out of context. And, you know, when you first look at a verse, you're like, oh, okay, I know exactly what that means. You, you, you read it, and you're like, oh, okay, that's pretty easy to understand. Someone points you to it, and you're like, oh, okay, I need to do that thing. But then once you study it, once you find out what it means in context, sometimes it can mean something completely opposite of what you first thought it meant. And so this is just the fourth installment of a series like that. And so as I do my daily Bible reading, um, I'll run across verses or passages that are misunderstood because they're taken out of context. So I'll go write them down, and then those are the passages that I study throughout the year in preparation for uh, straight out of context. And this is a bigger deal than just something that's interesting. This is a bigger deal than just like, eh, if I get it wrong, who really cares? Someone smarter than me will get it right, so it doesn't really matter. Now, this is a big deal. God makes some statements about the issue of taking the Bible out of context, of misunderstanding the Bible. Now, let's be clear. I have never met a Christian who wanted to take the Bible out of context. I've never met a Christian that said, I really hope I misunderstand the Bible today. I've never met a Christian that say, I am going to misunderstand the Bible. I am going to take the Bible out of context today. I've never met a Christian to do that. But what happens is we accidentally do it. Someone tells us something and we just believe it. Uh, we quickly read the one verse and say, okay, I think that's what it means to me. And it's something that doesn't happen on purpose it's something that happens just incidentally, accidentally, um, unintentionally. But there are some, some pretty dire warnings in the Bible for taking the Bible out of context, for misunderstanding it. I just want to show you a few of those to, to sh so that we know how important understanding the Bible really is. First Timothy chapter 4 says this. It says, "'Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching.'" Persevere in these things, for as you do, 
this, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and for those who hear you. Now, a little bit of context on this. This is written to Pastor Timothy, a young pastor. And Paul is saying, pay close, in, close attention to yourself, the way that you live, and pay close attention to your teaching. That word teaching there is doctrine. What, what you believe about the Bible, what you believe about God, pay close attention to the life that you live and to your doctrine, the things that you teach. And it says persevere in these things because it does take perseverance to live a godly life, and it does take perseverance to understand the Bible correctly. It takes perseverance. It takes work. That's the word. It takes work. But notice what happens when you put the work in and understanding the Bible accurately. It says it will ensure salvation for yourself and those who hear you. And it's just saying when you put the work in to understanding the Bible accurately, the people who listen to you teach it, they'll get saved because they're you're, they're hearing the real gospel from you, not something else. But obviously, written between the lines in this is, if you don't persevere in understanding the Bible, if you don't have good doctrine, then what could happen is the people who listen to you teach will never get saved because they're just hearing the wrong thing. And that's pretty dangerous. And so, it's not just something that, eh, well, if I get it wrong, who cares? No. Salvation is at stake as we understand our Bible. Here's another one. Titus 1 verse 9 says, holding fast the faithful word, which in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, that's partially my job as your pastor, to exhort in sound doctrine, to uh, encourage using accurate teaching of God's word. And as an aspect of that, then you can refute those who say, no, that's not what God says. You can say, oh, yeah, it is right here. Now, that's not only, though, my job. I want to teach you how to do it as well. Every Christian should know what the Bible says. This is a skill set that a Christian needs to develop over their lifetime is understanding what God says. And so that you could say, this is what God says, and you could say, no, that's not what God says. That's refuting those who contradict. And so that's the purpose of this series, is really both of these, to teach sound doctrine, but also to teach you how to come to the same conclusions, doctrinally, as I do. It doesn't take a, a brainiac, it takes a little bit of perseverance. It takes work. The last warning here in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, regarding our Bible, it says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. So notice what this says. It says, be diligent in proving yourself to be a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. Work at studying the Bible. It takes work. You're going to find today that it takes work. But when you put work into knowing your Bible, then you don't need to be ashamed in front of God. <laughs> That's why I study so hard. It's not really for you. It's because I'm going to have to give an account to God someday. I just don't want to be ashamed in front of Him. And so it says that when you, when you teach, study the Bible accurately, you become an approved workman accurately handling the word of truth, understanding the Bible correctly. And notice what happens if you misunderstand the Bible, if you handle the Bible incorrectly, you come to inaccurate conclusions about what the Bible says. That's what taking the Bible out of context often does. You misunderstand what God says. And so then what you have is you 
say, this is what God says, inaccurately. And then someone else says, no, 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 this is what I think God says, and it's inaccurate. And the two of you are arguing about things that don't even matter because God never said them. That's empty chatter. Does that make sense? It's a waste of time when you misunderstand God's Word to argue about it with anybody because God didn't say either one of those two things. And when the two of you are arguing about worldly chatter, things that God didn't say either one of these things, it leads us further away from God to further ungodly. It doesn't lead us closer to God. It leads us towards ungodliness. And so the implications in understanding our Bible are big. It's not, it's not, eh, who really cares? Eh, someone else will figure it out. Eh, if I get to heaven, I got it wrong, whatever, I'm still in heaven. No, you will be giving an account to God the way that you handled his word, just like I will. And so this is a skill set that every Christian needs to develop. God expects to be understood. He's, he's been clear, <laughs> and now he expects to be understood. Now, maybe you're relatively new as a Christian, and you thought, well, that's why I thought I came to church for you to tell me <laughs> what the Bible says. Well, that's partially true. The goal on Sunday mornings is to even plumb the depth even deeper than you might get in your daily Bible reading. But you might want to know, how can I be a good workman? How can I be not ashamed of the way that I study the Bible? Maybe you've been a Christian for a much longer time, and you're kind of embarrassed that you don't really know how to study the Bible very well. Well, I want to give you just three simple uh, tips to understand your Bible in context. Here are the three tips. This is, this is not earth-shaking. This is not brand new. But if you do these three things you will understand your Bible in context. If you don't do these three things, you will inaccurately understand your Bible. Here's the first one. Read the whole book. Read the whole book. So when someone says, hey, man, you've got to check, check out Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. You, gotta, you have to do that. But one of the first things that you would do is read verses 9 and 10. You're like, okay, well, what are they talking about? And then you would want to read the rest of the chapter to see the, the context, where it fits in the story. But that most likely won't give you enough information to come to a good conclusion about what those verses mean. You probably will have to read the entire book of Romans. Yikes! But see, th there's a benefit to that, though. You get to know who wrote it. You get to know who it was written to. And often in Paul's letters, you're going to find out like what issues are going on in, in, in their world. It could be going on in the church, or it could be going on culturally, or going on politically. And you'll find out all of those things as you read the entire book. And so, if this was written to uh, Israel in, in Egypt... Well, the conclusion is going to be a little different than if they're a Christian, a little small church in Turkey. You know what I mean? The, the, the conclusions are going to be different. If, they're, if, it's a church, if it's Christians that are just scattered abroad among the nations, it's going to be a little different than if it's a local church. And so sometimes you'll need to read the entire book to, to understand those two verses. And notice I also say, even the whole Bible... <laughs> I don't mean like you got to read the entire Bible every single time someone breathes to you like one verse. But what you do is you find 
the other places in the Bible where that topic is talked about, because the Bible always interprets itself. The Bible never is in conflict with itself, even though it's written over thousands of years and so many different authors, there is no conflict between them. And so, as you start to look at the other passages, that will help you understand this one that you're in. The topic that you come to the conclusion here must fit the conclusion of all the other places that topic is addressed. And you're like, that is a lot of work. I know. That's why it's easier to take it out of context. That's why it's easier just to call me and say, hey, what does this mean? This is why it's taken out of context. Because it's just so much easier to look at the verse and just move on, you know. But rarely do you understand it very well when you do it like that. So the first thing to do is to read the entire book. That's why the Bible says that it is a workman that does this. That's why it told Timothy to persevere in these things. It takes perseverance to understand your Bible. It takes, it's, a, it's a workman that's going to come to good doctrine, not someone who just reads on Saturday night and comes up with a sermon for Sunday morning. It's going to take work to do that. So first, read the entire thing. Then, after you do that, you ask the question, what does that mean to them? Now, remember the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was not written to you. Yes, it's written for our benefit. Probably a good way to say it is the Bible wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. The Bible wasn't written to you. It wasn't written to some person in 2022 in Riverside. It was written to people at least 2,000 years ago, if not 5,000 years ago. It was written to a different group of people. And so the question is never about what do I think this, what does this say to me? What does this mean to me? That's never the first question, never. If you want to know your Bible, the first question is, is what did it mean to them? What was the intended message for them? When they got this on a scroll, when this was read to them, what was the message that was intended for them? What were they supposed to do about it? And so you can see why you'd want to know all that's going on. You'd want to know, okay, is this, uh, is this Christians in a local church? Is this Israel wandering around the, the, the barren desert? Is this Israel in the promised land? Because all of those dynamics are going to affect how they're going to react to what they're reading, you know? And so that's why you have to read the entire, you have to know what's going on in the book. And you say, what does that mean to them? What, what message was being communicated to them as that was being written down and the first readers who were reading it? What did, what did God want them to do about it? You know, Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's, right? And so the, the intended message in the first century is, is obvious. The, the, the Jewish Christians are under the thumb of the Gentile Romans. And the Romans were exacting exorbitant taxes out of them. And they just had the attitude of, well, forget that. I'm not paying any of my taxes. <laughs> Who are you? You're not, you're not helping me out one bit. You're taxing me and then you're beating me. I mean, how good is this? And so Jesus says, Give to, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And that confirms other things that, it, that the Bible talks about, like in Romans when it talks about that the government being given by God, that the government's there is, is, 
is really the authority is given to them by God. And so what they need or what they ask for, you give them. And then obviously there was a further spiritual conclusion of, but you give God what is God's. He gave you your life. You give him your life. And so that was the conclusion in the first century. And so after you ask, what did it mean for them? What were the conclusions that they were to come to? Then you say, okay, now, does any of that affect me? What does that mean to me? Is there a universal truth? Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. Okay? Does any of that apply to me? And you're like, no, absolutely not. There is no Caesar, so I don't have to pay my taxes. See, it's there in the Bible. No. Obviously, there's a universal truth that extends beyond Caesar, and it goes to all believers and all forms of government that exact some sort of taxes. And so, we pay our taxes, and we do that because their authority comes from God, not from themselves. And so, there is a universal application to that one. Now, there's going to be times when you're reading the Bible, and there is no application for you. It's It's possible even probable. You're going to read the Old Testament, you get to book of Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus is written to the Levites. It's a certain tribe out of 12. It's a certain tribe, and they're, they're like the, the pastor tribe. They're the, the tribe that, that sets up the temple and runs the temple, the Levites. And so, when you read Leviticus, there's not a universal application where then you have to set up your house the same way that it describes in Leviticus. Does that make sense? Now, we understand a lot of things from Leviticus. We understand about who God is and how He operates. We learn a lot of wonderful things that are universal, but there might not be a specific application to you. The same application that was for them might not be something that's for you. And so that's why it's so important to read the entire book, to know, oh, this isn't written to me. This is written to the Levites. And you're like, that's a lot of work. It is. It is a lot of work. But the results are salvation. That's at stake. The results are wandering away from God, ungodliness. That's at stake. And so that's why we put the work into these things. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to use these three steps, and we're going to apply it to the question that we are looking at today. The question is, is a verbal declaration a prerequisite to salvation? That's kind of wordy, I know. Is a verbal, is saying something a prerequisite? Does that come before salvation? Now, you might not even be sure what I'm referring to here, but as soon as you read this passage, you're never going to forget this, okay? So, we're in Romans chapter 10. Verse 9. These are the two verses. Let's read them out of context, why don't we? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So those are the verses. And you can see in those verses that it does talk about confessing with the mouth. Now, you know that at the end of each of our worship services, I lead uh, a prayer of faith where people can put their faith and trust in Jesus at the end of our worship services. And you even heard me say, you don't need to say anything out loud. You can just agree with this in your heart. This is a matter of the heart between you and God. 
And so a while ago now, there was a wonderful Christian who had started attending Grace Community Church, and they'd attended our worship services for uh, several weeks, and, and they'd heard me say that several weeks in a row. And after one worship service, I'm, you know, standing down here, and they came up and they pointed to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and they said, I don't believe that anybody can be saved without a verbal statement. And he said, I, I believe that because the Bible says it. And I don't think, he says, that anyone in your church is saved because of that. Now, what do you say to that? <laughs> well, let's understand these verses in context so that we can come to an accurate conclusion about the way of salvation. Because that's, that's the issue. How does a person get saved? Okay? So let's start with the first part. The first part is read the entire book. Of course, you'd start with the immediate context. The immediate context is uh, Romans 10, verses 4 to 13. That would be like the immediate context. Then you have the bigger context of the entire book, and then you have the entire Bible. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to make you read all of Romans before we do this. Um, I've done that part for you. The, the, the theme of Romans is salvation comes through grace, not through any human effort. That's the theme of Romans. It says it in a lot of places in Romans, but Romans 3 is a great place. This is like the theme of Romans. The righteousness of God has been manifested, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so this says that salvation comes through faith, that's faith in your heart, to those who believe in their heart. And that doesn't come as a surprise to you because the entirety of Scripture says the same thing, that salvation comes through belief, belief that Jesus Christ is the Savior, belief that He died on the cross for my sins, and He rose from the grave, and He has the power to remove my sins because He is God. Belief, faith in the heart, right? And so then any salvation that comes, comes from grace, Grace is just unmerited favor, meaning I didn't do anything to earn it. It's a gift that I received that I did nothing to earn it. I did nothing for it, but now I received it. That's grace, unmerited favor. And so this doesn't surprise you. This is what the Bible talks about often when it talks about salvation. Now, this is the same way that people got saved in the Old Testament. Here's the way that Abraham got saved in the Old Testament. I mean, we're talking old school. We're talking old school, old school. And, and the Jews often mention Abraham because he is like the OG, you know. He, everything goes back to Abraham for the Jews. And so this is the way that Abraham is saved. It says, even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Notice that Abraham didn't have to say something. Abraham didn't have to proclaim something or confess something. He just believed in his heart. Interestingly, if you had to say something about Jesus in order to be saved, Abraham would have never been saved. 
He couldn't be saved. Abraham didn't know anything about Jesus. He didn't know the name Jesus. He had no clue about any of that. Abraham had faith in a coming Messiah. That's all he had faith in. There was a coming Messiah that was going to take away his sins. There was a perfect sacrifice that was going to come and remove all of his sins because he wasn't perfect enough to do that. A perfect sacrifice was going to come. That's what Abraham knew. He didn't even know the name of Jesus. And so if you have to make a verbal confession about Jesus in order to be saved, then even Abraham couldn't have even been saved. Salvation has always been through belief, a heart belief, a a, a faith. It has never been through sacrifices in the Old Testament. The sacrifices merely covered up the sin. They didn't remove the sin. Salvation has never come through verbal Uh, statements of confession in the New Testament. It has always been through faith. Now, that is true even in the book of Romans. Turning your Bibles to Romans, just a few pages back to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Paul also, uh, here in Romans, mentions the same thing about Abraham. Same exact thing, quotes the same passage, because this is like such an important deal. And this is what Paul says, Romans 4, verse 3. It says, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We, underst- we already understand that because we studied that already, talked about it. And it says, verse 4, now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. So let's stop right there for a minute. You go to work this week, work Monday through Friday, you work hard, and at the end of the week, you expect your boss to pay you. And when your boss pays you, he's doing you no favors because you've already done the work. You've probably worked more than what he's paying you for. If you're on salary, that's exactly the way that it works. And so when he pays you, there is no favor there that it was due that employee, that the, the employer owed that employee the money because he had done the work for it. We understand that so far? Okay, let's take the next step. Verse 5, it says, but to the one who does not work. Okay, so now we're talking about a person who doesn't go and do the work, but he is still paid. Now that is some good favor, isn't it? Okay, but to the one who does not work, verse 5, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. So this is talking about the person that spiritually does no work, but it it is his belief in Jesus, his faith in Jesus, that is what saves him. Now, someone said, well, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to be a really good person, and I'm going to make a verbal confession, and I'm going to follow all 613 rules and laws. And and so then that person says, okay, God, you owe me salvation. But that's not the way that it works. That's not the way that salvation works at all. It is by grace, unmerited favor. The person who doesn't do any of the work but simply has the faith in the work of Jesus Christ, that is the unmerited favor of grace. And so in the Old Testament, salvation is through a heart belief, a heart faith. In the New Testament, salvation is through belief, a heart faith, not through a verbal confession at all, all right? So now we've looked at the the first step 
We've read Romans. We understand the theme of Romans. We've looked at other places in the Bible that talk about the same topic of, of being saved. So let's go to the next part. What was the intended message for those who were hearing this for the very first time? What was the, the message that they were supposed to get? So move back in your Bibles to the book of Romans for chapter 10. What did this mean to them when they heard it, when they read it? Scoot back up to the, the context of Romans 10. Look at verse 4. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Aha! This whole passage is already about belief, a heart belief. That's the passage. And we go to the next verse. For Moses writes that the man who practices righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness, meaning as soon as you fail, just one time, you're done. Just once, you're done. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And then so Paul quotes Deuteronomy here, quotes Deuteronomy for a couple verses. We get down to verse 8, but what does it say? Quoting Deuteronomy 30, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That's the quote. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So Paul is saying, okay, we are preaching this message. We are verbalizing it because it is in our heart. We, we've preached it, and the reason that we preached it is because it is in our heart. And so he uses these phrases, mouth, and he uses the word, the word heart, or the, uh, yeah, the word heart, the mouth and the heart. That's, that's the order that we're preaching it because it's in our heart. That's the message. Okay? And then so we get to the two verses that now we're talking about, verse 9. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so what Paul is doing here is he is using that same word order, mouth and heart. You've heard us preach it with our mouths because it's in our heart, and now he's saying that is the outsider's understanding of salvation. An outsider meaning someone who is looking at a Christian. The only way that an outsider knows that someone is saved in their heart is by them confessing it, them verbalizing it, them communicating it to you somehow. How would Paul ever know if any of these people are Christians if they don't say something to him about it? How does everybody know that Paul is saved? Because he's preaching. That's kind of the message. That it comes from belief. I have believed, and so now I am preaching it. How would you know if any of your friends or family member or your spouse or your kids are saved? How would you know? You wouldn't know. The only way you would know is if they said something. <laughs> and so that is the outside-in view of salvation that a person gets saved, but the outsider doesn't know that. The only way that they know that is they, they hear your verbal confession, and then they know what's going on with your heart. You say it, and so then they know that you got saved. So that's what verse 9 is. Verse 9 is the outside looking in to salvation, because these people are on the outside looking in at Paul's salvation. The reason that I'm preaching this is because it's in my heart, outside in. 
But then we get to the next verse, verse 10, which is the inside out of salvation, the chronological order of salvation. Okay? Verse 10 says, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Okay, so the, the word confess here means to affirm or to confirm or to agree. That's the word confess there. And so the confession is a simply saying that's the outward of what has already happened on the inside. And so this is, an, this is the inside-out process of salvation. A person believes in his heart. He has faith in his heart. That's where salvation comes is through that belief. And then the natural response of someone who is saved is that they're going to say something, that their life is going to show it, that they're going to confess that they love Jesus Christ. And so as we understand this passage the way that they would have understood it when they first read it is not that the verbal declaration is the means of salvation, but that the verbal declaration is merely a result of salvation, that the verbal declaration is the fruit that comes from somebody who is already saved. So Paul says, I'm preaching belief in Jesus. He says, you've seen it in me. I'm preaching it with my mouth because it's in my heart. And that's the way, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing the outside in of my salvation. And then he flips it and he says, but the chronological order is with the heart a person believes, resulting then in someone saying something out loud, verbalizing what's going on. And that's what happens all the time when someone is baptized here at Grace Community Church. Last week, we had a couple of baptisms. And what happens is that person verbalizes their faith, maybe to me or maybe to Pastor Chuck or to the baptism counselors that are up front. They say, I'm a Christian and I want to be baptized. And up until that point, we didn't know. But now that we know, that's all we need to know. Okay, great. Let's baptize you. That's why we have our teenagers come to uh, our worship services on Sunday morning. One of many reasons that we have our teenagers come to our worship services on Sunday morning is because we want, they're old enough to verbalize their love for Jesus themselves to someone to say that they want to be baptized. If we just kept all of our teenagers all in daycare somewhere, but we wanted to baptize them, it would be their parents that would come to us and say, oh, I want to get my kids baptized. But that's not the right... Baptism isn't about pleasing your parents. It's not about your parents doing it. It's not about doing it because your friends do it. You get baptized because you hear about the need, and you want to follow through in discipleship in Christ. And so that's the order. That's the order that it always is. Someone believes, and then they communicate, and then they get baptized. I want to show you something in Acts. This is the way that it happened in Acts. Kind of a cool story. Family of Cornelius. Have it on the screen here so you don't have to turn there. Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. This is Cornelius and his family. And Peter heard them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And so he ordered them to be baptized. So let's follow what's happening. Peter is um, preaching a little sermon 
because he wants his family to be saved. And as he's preaching this sermon, notice what the family doesn't do. The family doesn't say, stop, 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 Peter, just for a minute. I have to verbally say that I love Jesus. And now that I've done that, now continue on in your sermon. They didn't do that. Peter's just preaching away, preaching, preaching, preaching. And notice what happened. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening. Now, why did the Holy Spirit fall upon them? Because they believed. Because they had faith in their heart. All the while, Peter's still going at it. He's still trying to save people who are already saved, but he doesn't know it. And then, though, they verbalize it. Now, all of a sudden, they, they start exalting God themselves. And then that's all that Peter needed to know. Okay, you are saved. That's the right order. You get saved by faith, by belief in your heart. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. We talk about that often. No, most people don't know that that occurs in that moment. Then there's another time at some point in time where you then communicate it to someone else, and that's when everybody else says, okay, I, okay now, now I know. That's what exactly happened here. This has always been the method of salvation. That, that was the method of salvation for Abraham, belief in the heart. That was the method of salvation for Paul, faith, belief in Jesus Christ, in his heart. That's where your salvation came from, was through belief, through faith, not through saying something out loud, not through walking forward, not through raising your hand, but through a, a faith, a belief that you had in your heart. And then you told people. Now, maybe the way that you told people was raising your hand. Maybe the way that you told people was walking forward somewhere. Maybe the way you told people was uh, saying something verbally out loud. But it always begins with the heart. Okay, and so we've done the first two, two steps. We've, we've done read all of Romans and understand what Romans is all about and so we can understand it in context. We've even looked at the rest of the Bible to see what the Bible says about how do you get saved. It's always the same way. And then we looked at it specifically in context. What would they have gotten from it? Well, what they would have gotten from it is, okay, I can see you preaching it because you're saved, and so when I get saved, then I'm probably going to tell other people too. That was the the intended message, the, the intended receipt was exactly that. And so now, though, let's, let's go to that third step. Now, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? Is there some universal truths that we can apply from this passage? Well, I've picked three. There are, there are more that you can pick, but I picked three. And the first one that is a conclusion from what we've read here is that all Christians won't necessarily verbally say something about their faith in Jesus. Remember Peter? Peter, he, uh, he, he, Jesus is arrested, he's taken to trial, and so Peter's questioned, do you know Jesus? Nope, <laughs> I don't know nothing about him. Now, if it was about the verbal communication, if that's how Peter got saved, was through the verbal confession, then that would have been the way that he lost his salvation by saying, nope, I don't know him. He would have lost his salvation there, but he did not lose his salvation because his faith was not from the verbal, his salvation was from the heart. But it does teach us that not all Christians are always going to verbalize their faith. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, there have been times ourselves that we, probably more times than we even want to admit that we haven't confessed Christ in front of people that we are around. 
So not all Christians all the time are going to confess Christ verbally. Second thing that we learn from this is that your salvation comes through belief in your heart. Your salvation comes through a, a heart faith, not through anything that you say or do, but a faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God, that He come to, came to earth as a human, that He died on the cross for your sins, and that's a wonderful thing because it's God dying for us. He rose from the grave proving that He is God and He can remove sin. A belief, a heartfelt belief in that. And immediately what occurs is a gift of grace. Nothing that we earned, nothing that we did, Jesus' death applies in my life. There's nothing that you did for that. You didn't verbalize anything. That's not where salvation comes from. Singing our worship songs really loud, that does not save you. Teaching Sunday school on Sunday morning, that doesn't save you. Check this out. You could even share the gospel of Jesus with someone else, and that doesn't save you. The Bible even talks about that, about people who were sharing the gospel for dastardly means. They weren't even saved themselves, but they're sharing the gospel. It is a heart decision. It is an internal belief in Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, the one that you're going to follow for the rest of your life. That's what, that's the application. Your salvation came from a belief. Now, the third application is one that we don't really want to apply too much, but the third application is when a Christian is saved, there should be some evidence of that. When a Christian is saved, the natural thing is for them to communicate it to other people. Now, it might be verbally, it might be in sharing their testimony. It might be in, uh, in specifically sharing the way to be saved, the gospel. And it might be verbally communicated like that, but often that verbal communication can be augmented, can be highlighted by living a life for Jesus Christ. That sometimes people notice our lives, not our words. doesn't mean the words are not important. It just means sometimes they notice a hypocrite. And so our lives should reflect our love for Jesus. The Bible talks about this in a lot of places, but I've just picked one of them. 1 John chapter 3 says this, but whoever has the world's goods, meaning he's kind of wealthy, and sees his brother who is in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You notice that the order that, that there, there is, if someone is saved in the heart, then there would be some sort of evidence on the outside. Little children, let, let, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Don't just say, I love Jesus. Live as if you love Jesus. That is the order. And both are important. We are saved first by belief in our heart, and then it becomes obvious to, to people. James says it a little differently. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. That's the way James says it. And so these are the three things that we learn. Not everybody is going to be verbalized. Not, not every Christian is going to verbalize every time about their faith in Jesus. But your salvation does not come through verbal or any other means. It comes through faith in your heart in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And thirdly, people should notice. It, it should be communicated. It should be confessed. Now, follow this question even a little bit further. Is a verbal declaration a prerequisite for salvation? Think of this. What if someone is deaf 
or mute. Does that mean they could never be saved? And you're like, no, 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 doesn't, no, no, no. We know that that's not right. But sometimes we just go with, well, I mean, that's what the Bible says, and so it must be true. I mean, what if someone had, as an aspect of an accident or of war, their tongue removed? Does that mean they could never be saved? What about some, some person who was born without the ability to, to communicate, their cognitive ability just is not there to communicate? Does that mean that they could never be saved? Of course not. It is always belief in a person's heart. That is where salvation comes from all the time. Now, for someone who is mute or who is deaf, they couldn't communicate it verbally that they're saved, and how would they communicate it? Through their life, the way that they live. That's the only way that they could communicate that they are saved, is from the life that they live, living a sanctified life. Now, you might ask the question, well, what what about someone who does not verbally communicate their faith in Jesus, and their life doesn't look as if they're following Jesus either. There's no words and there's no fruit. Are they really saved? Well, I'm not the doctor to diagnose that. However, this would be my prescription to address that. I would take that really seriously. Here's my prescription, 2 Corinthians 13. It says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail the test? So if you are not a big verbalizer in your faith in Christ and your life doesn't show any reflection of Jesus Christ, I would take those as warning signs. What I suspect in someone like that is that they have lived a life, a good life. They have lived well. They have done all the right things. And now they're expecting God to pay them in salvation. I've lived good, and so now you owe me. And so there's no reason to declare because God owes me salvation. I don't need to do anything. He owes it to me. That's not the way that it works. Salvation comes through belief that Jesus Christ is your Savior and there is no, nothing that you could do. You're not good enough. Your sin already separates you from God. And the only way to salvation is through this grace, this, this unmerited favor that Abraham received, that Cornelius and his family received, that Paul received and that many people in this room have received. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, today is the day to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? This creates a little separation between you and the person next to you. And um, we're going to pray a prayer that you don't need to say out loud. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, I'm going to give you the opportunity to to talk to him. It's just called prayer. And, And prayer is talking to God. And maybe you're not sure what to say. But you could just agree with this prayer in your heart and you will be saved. And this is the prayer that you would pray. God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've done things that I shouldn't have done and that separates me from you forever, even in a place called hell after I die. And I know that I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus is God. 
I believe that he was born of a virgin and lived a perfect life. And I believe that when he died on the cross, he was dying for my sins. And I believe that three days later, he rose from the grave, proving that he is God and he can remove my sin. I put my faith in this Jesus. I put my trust in this Jesus. My eternity is in the hands of Jesus. Your heads bow and your eyes close. The immediate promise is that what happened to Cornelius' family will happen to you. God, the Holy Spirit, immediately comes and lives inside of you. Nobody in this room knows it. But you know it, and God knows it. And at some point in time, it will come out, and you'll tell someone else. Now, God, we praise you for this. We praise you for the words that we've read. We thank you for the, the relief in knowing that salvation is a gift of grace and not something that we have to earn. We praise you that it's, it's our meager faith and your infinite grace that allows us to have the hope of salvation. We praise you for that. That's why we sing the worship songs we do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.